I would ask you to return in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. You know, as we were singing that song, Your Grace is Enough, a little bit ago, don't know if you're familiar with this or, or if you're aware of this, but that particular song really flows out of the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, specifically Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk hears this message that God's going to bring judgment upon the people and thousands and thousands are going to die because of their rebellion. And in the course of this, Habakkuk has to trust God. He's struggling with this. And, and, and in essence, he says, okay, in your wrath, remember mercy, God. And, and, and the implication of is, is your grace is enough. I'll trust in that. So as you sing that song, it's really set in a very heavy context, and, and, uh, and I was thinking about that as we were singing it, and, and sometimes we can sing those songs and get excited about the, the music or the, 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 the speed or the excitement of it, but there's a really essence of a heart there of a man struggling, and, and yet he had to come to grips with the fact that God's grace is enough for him in the midst of the storm, and it's enough for us as well. So why don't we just pray to that God here today? And, and, and thank him for his grace before we uh, jump into his word. So just join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that it is enough, that, that you do remember your people, that you do remember your promises, that you do remember us, and that in the midst of all that goes on in this world and the, 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 the good times and the bad times, the rough times, that, that you remember you remember your people, you remember your promises, and, uh, and your grace just surrounds us, and we stand upon it and cling to it and rely upon it, and I thank you for that. We thank you for that even now as we, we come to your word, as we learn more about your heartbeat for us, why you have saved us, why you have gathered us as your people. I pray, God, as we are in your word today, that it would genuinely challenge us, change us, that it would conform us to the image of Jesus. And it's his, in his name and on his grace I proclaim this and depend on it. Amen. Well, we come to this last sermon in our August time, where, as I've been saying for the past few weeks, I like to use the month of August to set the tone for the ministry year that's coming up, and, and we'll be back in our study of Luke soon. But, uh, but what I want to do today is just take our final Sunday examining the theology of what it means to engage, set the, uh, the focus for this next ministry year that we would engage distinctively at all points in our life as Christians, in, in our community, in our relationships, with the world, that we would be actively and aggressively engaging as Christians, not just reacting to the world, not running from the world, not being afraid of the world, but standing there in the grace of God and engaging it distinctively as a Christian. And we have spent some time just setting the theology of that over this month of August. We looked at the very beginning at the book of Proverbs and looked at the fact that, that wisdom, the wisdom of God, is, is taking the truth and the knowledge of God and living it out in real life. And that is what engagement is. It's living out who God is and his truth everywhere all the time. 
And then we looked at the fact that our God is a God of engagement. He has all the power in the world. He has all the wealth in the world. He has all the, the position of authority in the world. And what does he do with that power and his wealth and his authority? He engages with salvation and love. And he comes to this world to redeem people. Our God is a God of engagement. And then we looked at, last week, the fact that, that this God engaged ultimately in the person of Jesus. And when he engaged in the person of Jesus, Jesus called us to be part of his own. And when he called us to be part of his own, he called us with the intention that we would be salt and light. That we would have an impact and an influence in the world. And now we are going to see the final piece of this. That if that is the reality of what it means to be a Christian, to be salt and light, then that means that the church must gather to engage. So in order to think about that and to think about our church through the lens of engaging, I want to ask you just a simple question to get your, your brain engaged. And the simple question is this, why do you go to church? Just think about that. Just take a moment. Just, just ponder that. Why did you come here today? What was the motivating factor that brought you into this room? Now, maybe some people came and said, I want to learn about God. Come here, desire to learn about God. I want to, you got to grow in order to be a Christian, and, and you got to be under the word, and so I want, I've come to, to learn about God. Some of you maybe have come and said, well, you know, gathering together is about worship, and I want to worship God. Some people say, you know, I've come to connect with the body of Christ. I want to connect with people. I knew one guy who would come to church to get convicted. He used to come up to me. He wasn't here, another place. He used to come up to me at the end of a sermon and say, you know, Pastor, you were preaching that grace stuff for so long there, and finally you got to the end and you started convicting us. You know, and he'd get all bent out of shape if I didn't say something that zapped his heart. Right? He just wanted to come and get beat up. I wondered what he did all week and how he treated people. But anyway, that's a whole other thought. Some people go to church because that's what you're supposed to do, right? I mean, you're supposed to go to church. You'll, you know, bad things will happen to you if you don't. Some most, you know, there's some collection of, of thoughts there. Some go for all those reasons. Now, those reasons, maybe throw out that one about just coming to be convicted, you know, th those aren't bad reasons to go to church. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to go to be with God's people to worship or be under his word. But sometimes what gets lost in those kind of individual reasons, I'm going because I like the music or I'm going because I, I like the teaching or I'm going because I like the Sunday school. Sometimes those individual reasons can, can make us a bit myopic. And we can lose sight of what Jesus had in mind when he said, I want you to gather. I want you to gather as my people. And I want you to gather for a reason. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, gives us some insight into that reason behind the gathering. He tells the, the author, tells the people, I, I want you to, to not forsake that gathering, especially as we get closer to the return of the Lord. Don't forsake it. Because I want you to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I want you to invest into each other so that you would love more and that you would actually live out the gospel more. 
So when you gather, I want you to do this. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 4, that the leaders were given to the church to equip the church so that the body would build itself up in love. Now, why would we need to build ourselves up in love? Why would we need to stimulate each other into love and good deeds? Well, it's precisely for one reason, that the church was created by Jesus to advance, to take ground. The church was created by Jesus to have an impact, that the collective whole would actually have an impact where they are. And that's what we're going to see today in this passage in Matthew. And as we look at this passage, I really want us to get a, a, a huge view of the church. That, that's my, my heart for us. That we would just get a huge view. That we would see the church not just as a place I like to go to when I have time or the place that's a good place to go to because they have good this or good that or the place that benefits me because of this or that. But that we would actually see the church not as a building, not as a location, not as a place we go, but as the very body of Christ collected together to make an impact where it is. That's what I want you to see. And I'll tell you, it's really exciting, freeing to see the church this way. Freeing. We get freed from all of the, the, the stuff that normally weighs us down when we lose sight of it. And, and that's what I want us to get here today. So we have to do this two ways. If you're going to study the church and learn about the church, you first have to understand Jesus, right? He is the foundation, the cornerstone of the church. And so we're going to see the message of the Messiah today. And then you have to see the mission of the Messiah. First, we've got to look at who Jesus is, and then we've got to see what Jesus is doing. And so we're going to see that this morning, and hopefully it will just absolutely blow away our view of the church. Just blow it up and, and let us see the church in a different light. So let's begin here. Matthew 16. This is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. If we were studying through Matthew, this is the point when, when things shift. This is where, where, where Jesus is, takes his disciples aside and, and he begins the process of preparing them for what is about to happen. His character, his nature is, is being defined here. The people, the, the religious leaders begin to turn on him. It's a really huge moment. And Jesus now has gathered these disciples at this turning point time in, in history. And look at verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? So here's where we are. We're at this, so this turning point in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus takes his disciples on a vacation. When you read this, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, for those of us here in Illinois, northern Illinois, we'd be familiar with this, it'd be like saying he, Jesus took his disciples to Lake Geneva. So when you think of that kind of place, you're thinking of a vacation spot. This area, the region of Caesarea Philippi, is on the foothills of a mountain. It was cool. It was the summertime when he took them there. So he's taking them up to a little higher elevation. It's cool. There's, there's, there's water there, and it's a place people went to relax. So the picture here is that Jesus grabs his men, he's got his 12 there, and he begins to have some informal training. And he begins by asking a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the, Jesus has been referring to himself as the Son of Man, and so he's saying, who do people say that I am? So he, 
this is a kind of a way of getting the, the conversation going, introductory question. It's also going to set up a contrast. But what I want you to notice here, and you've got to store this. There's some facts that we've got to store along the way that, that will help us when the text gets a little more complicated. Notice that Jesus asked the disciples. Do you see that there? He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then notice in verse 14, and they said. Just notice that. That will be important later. Okay, just leave it there. And they said. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So, they're, they're peppering out answers. That's the picture. Jesus, who do you say that I am? And they're throwing out different people. What do all these people have in common? These are all very powerful, important, dead prophets. John is dead. Elijah's dead. Jeremiah's dead. And so they're all saying, everybody thinks you are this incredible prophet who's been raised from the dead. Which is really flattering, if you think about it. I mean, in one sense, it's not, in another sense. But, but they definitely recognize Jesus as being special. He's a raised prophet. In fact, Herod Antipas, the Herod who killed John the Baptist, he actually thought that Jesus was the resurrected John the Baptist. And it freaked Herod out because Herod had his head cut off, you know, and then he's thinking, oh, no, John's come back to haunt me. Kind of an Ichabod Crane thing going on here. Right? And he's freaking out. So everybody's wondering, is he really resurrected, you know, John the Baptist? What is happening here? But the point is this. All these people have recognized how special Jesus is. But they've missed it. They've missed it. They've missed 100% of it. And in fact, it's very insulting. It's very insulting, if you think about it. Because the, Jesus is not just a resurrected prophet. He's much more than that. But the people can't see it. Okay, so so there's, there's our introductory question from Jesus. Then look at verse 15. And he said to them, notice the word them there. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So he's asking the, the 12, who do you say that I am? Then notice 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter is now speaking on behalf of the eleven. And he's saying, you are the Christ. And in fact, actually the way that this would have been written, in, in the Greek, it doesn't translate in our English this way, there's thes all over the place. And grammatically, when you put a the in front of something, you make it definite. The is actually grammatically called a definite article. Don't write that down. Just, it's bad to write grammar things down. It's just the. Okay, but it is. It's important. The makes something definite. So if I say, bring me the cup, you're not just going to grab any cup. You're going to say, which cup? Because I just said the cup, right? So when you put a the in front of something, you're not making it general. You're making it specific. And it's actually worded this way. You are the Christ, the Son of the living, the God. So you'd translate it really this way. You are the Messiah, the Son of the one who's alive, who is the God. That's actually how he answered it. All these thus. Why would he answer it this way? He's making it clear. We don't think you're a resurrected John the Baptist. In fact, 
There's two things. You are there. You are the Messiah. How would he have understood the Messiah? I think Peter would have understood it. This is the seed of the woman, right? This is the offspring of Abraham. This is the seed of David. This is the one who in Psalm 2 has been given authority over the world. He's the judge of the living and the dead. You're the one that we've been waiting for who will rescue us. You're the answer to everything. But you're not only that. You are are, are the son of the God who is alive. Now, would Peter have understood, this is theologically called the hypostatic union, would he have understood the hypostatic union that Jesus had two nature, divine nature and human nature, and was he propagating? I don't think Peter fully comprehended that at this moment. But he did understand something. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He is the one who is connected to God himself. He has come from God. And I think he recognizes the divinity of him. There's something. You are so different. You are so unique. That's who you are. And so there's a contrast there. The people think he's a human prophet resurrected. Peter speaking grammatically on behalf of the eleven saying, we think you are the anointed one, the one who comes from God himself. That's who we think. Now notice what Jesus says, verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we know that we call Peter Peter, but his actual given name is Simon. His name, his actual first name is Simon. His last name is Bar-Jonah. Bar just means son of. And in that day, you would put Bar in front of something. So, for example, Andrew, my son, would be Andrew Bar-Stephan. Would be his name. Son of Stephan. So, Simon's name is Simon, son of Jonah. His father's name was Jonah. Good Bible trivia. Somewhere in a Bible trivia game, someone will ask you, what is the name of Simon Peter's dad? You now know Jonah. Okay? If you don't know it, use that one at a party. Christian party, because no one really cares about that in other places. Okay? Simon, son of Jonah. Now, Jesus calls him Simon, son of Jonah, because you're not divine. But my father, who is divine, the one I'm connected to, the one I share a nature with, he is the one who has revealed to you who I am. You didn't get this on your own. The father showed it to you. You are blessed, Simon. You're blessed. You saw something that only God can show you, which is really important. A little side note here, if I could take a little rabbit trail. This is true throughout all of Scripture. At the end of the day, you never can really know who Jesus is unless God opens someone's eyes. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4, I just keep proclaiming Jesus because the same God who said, let there be light, is the same guy who can open the eyes of of someone's mind. And when God opens their eyes, I want them to see Jesus. So I just keep Jesus in front of people all the time. So when God opens their eyes, that's what they'll see. This is why we need to pray for people. God, open their eyes, let them see it. And why we want to keep 
Jesus in front of people. So he's saying, here, the Father has shown this to you. So now, before we get into Jesus defining the church in this passage, Jesus has himself defined. Because we have to get Jesus right before we can understand the church. The whole church is built on and around and in and for and through Jesus. So how you define Jesus determines how you understand the mission of the church. And so Jesus is who? He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one who saves. He's the one who does everything. It's all about him. It's all in and through him. We're built on him. We're built in him. We're built through him. We're built for him. It's all about Jesus. So, so this is the message. Peter got it. He proclaimed it boldly. I believe the other ten there, I'm writing Judas off, the other ten didn't. Did. Sorry. Well, that was backwards. Judas didn't get it. The other ten did. I think they all saw this. I think when Peter answered, he answered because I am certain that they were having conversations about this. They had many conversations about it. Some of them were recorded in Scripture. Jesus calms the sea, right? We oftentimes see that. He's in the boat, you know, the story, and the, he's asleep, and the disciples are freaking out. And they wake him up, don't you care? We're going to die. And then Jesus is like, oh, you guys have no faith. And then he goes, shh, and the, and the, and the sea's calm. At that moment, the disciples did not go, wow, he can calm the problems in my life just by going, shh. They didn't say that. They went, who is this one that's in our boat that can do this? This is really scary. He's incredible. He freaks us out when he does that. Seriously, this is, they, they would get these glimmers of Jesus and they would be terrified. They would see the fullness of who he is. You could imagine the conversations that would go on after that. They were huge. They got it. So there's the foundation of our church. But now what we have to do is see, the Father shows us who Jesus is. Now Jesus is going to tell us what he's going to do. And here's where we get to the mission of the Messiah. Let's look at the mission. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Now, earlier I told you, got to remember the these, the theys, he's speaking to the disciples and all of this. Peter responds. This is where this is important, because you get to verse 18, and that's a very controversial verse for some people. Some people read that and they say, this is where Peter gets all the authority in the church. And he becomes the, the sole leader and then there's going to be a line of people who are going to follow after him that will be in this sole authority because he is Peter. He's been given this authority. And so the question is, when, Peter, when Jesus says this and he calls and he changes his name to Peter, what does he mean by that? Why change his name? There's lots of stuff that's been written on it. What I'd like us to do is just look at it in its most natural setting. And then we'll look at some other scripture verses to just to see if, it's, if that is consistent throughout the Bible. But, but so, so let's just kind of jump into this. Here you have in verse 18, he says, you are Peter. Peter just simply means rock. Now in the Greek language, there's two words for rock. One is petros, one is petra. Some people say that that's important in this text because... Uh, Peter is called Petros here, and 
And then it says, on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So some say uh, he's not turning into the Pope here at this moment because of this Greek word difference. I wanted to point that out. Some of you are familiar with that. I don't know if that's really a strong argument. The whole reason why is, first of all, Jesus was speaking Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there are no distinctions between the words rock, Petro and Petras. It's, it's only a Greek distinction. Uh, and and the, this is grammar stuff. And I'm gonna just, for all you grammar people, you're going to love this. If you hate grammar, just zone out for a minute. Okay, just think about dinner and then come back. I'll call you back. Uh, the word Petra is in the feminine. The, the word rock is a feminine word, a feminine noun. And you can't have a boy's name in the feminine. So they just changed it to Petros in the Greek because you, you can't name a boy Karen. Okay? <laughs> you can't name him Petra. You have to name him Petros. And so probably just grammatically, it was just changed to Petros. So I don't think it has a huge bearing on the argument. Okay, come on back, non-grammar people. Okay. What's the issue here? I think there's a couple things that are going on here. What, what, what's happened? Why is this happening? Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples. Peter answers on behalf. The disciples answer, who do people say that I am? And they're throwing out all their different answers. Who do you say I am? Peter jumps into the fray, leads off, says, you're the Messiah. You're not just a resurrected prophet. You are the anointed one of God. Jesus says, Peter, you're blessed, man. God showed this to you. But I want to tell you something. You're a rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, what's the rock he's going to build the church on? I think there's two things you have to see there. One is the message itself. What did Peter do? It isn't that Peter was some special guy. Jesus made it clear you weren't special. God the Father showed this to you. And what was so important? That he understood who Jesus was. And what did the disciples do? They went out and they proclaimed the message of Christ. And that became the cornerstone, the foundation of the church. Everywhere they went, they preached Jesus. Everywhere they went, they proclaimed him. But secondly, we notice something about Peter. Peter was a very critical guy in this mission. Three very critical things about Peter. Number one, at this turning point in the ministry of Jesus, he was the first person to proclaim Jesus was the Messiah of the, of the disciples. First one. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes down. Who's preaching? Peter. He's the first person to stand before Israel. Stand before the nation of Israel and say, the one that you said crucified to, died. But on the third day, he rose from the dead, and there's life in his name. He proclaimed it to the nation of Israel. Then in Acts chapter 10, he is the first person to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So I think there's two things going on here. I think on the one hand, the critical thing is that Jesus is saying, the message of me is the foundation. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the rock. But Peter, you're going to be the one who's going to go out there at these critical moments and establish this as the foundation for the church. So I think there is a uniqueness to Peter here. I don't think it's a popish kind of a thing. But I think he's a critical, critical leader. And then 
We don't have time to unpack it, but if you were to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16, you would see Peter, he's getting ready to die, and he's going over the gospel. This is who Jesus is. And then he says this. He says, now, we didn't make this up. The Father told it to us. And now I'm telling you, pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to your scriptures. So he didn't turn everybody back to himself as some kind of leader. He turned everybody back to the message because that's the foundation of the church. So he's saying, Peter, you're going to go out there. And on this message that you will be the first to proclaim of who I am, I will build my church. Now notice, Jesus says, I will build my church. It's interesting. I've heard this a lot of times. You know, I, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. If you came up to me and said, Steve, I love you, but I, I can't stand your wife. That'd be hard to hang out with you at Thanksgiving. Right? If you're going to love me, you've got to love Heather. Right? You, you cannot hate my bride and love me. You cannot hate the bride of Christ. You cannot say, I don't need the church. I don't need it. Jesus, I'm building this thing. This is what I'm about. This is what I do. I build my church. You're going to go out and you're going to proclaim my name. You're going to make my name known. You're going to point people to me. And I'm going to pull them in and I'm going to build them up on a church. To what's called the church. Jesus is building his church. Now, the good news is, I'm not building the church. The elders of our church are not building the church. You're not asked to build this church. Jesus is going to build it. He's just told us, make his name known and make disciples. And I'm going to call him into my church. But then he says this, I'll build my church. And then notice, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, you have to catch what is here. Have you ever had this happen to you before? Don't raise your hand if it's yes, because it's not good, okay? Have you ever had this happen before? You're walking by a gate, walking down a street, someone has a fence up, and the fence all of a sudden just jumped out and punched you in the nose. Okay, don't raise your hand, okay? Because it can't happen, right? Gates don't attack. So isn't it interesting that Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against what I'm building. What's he saying there? How can the gates of hell prevail? Well, let's answer the question. What are the gates of hell? The old translation, the King James had the, the, the gates of Haiti. And Hades is probably a better word than hell there. This is basically, Hades is the place of the dead. Whenever they refer to the gates of hell, it refers to, we would use this language today, strongholds of Satan. Maybe you've heard people use that, that phrase before. Areas where the, you know, evil is controlling something. And the picture that's painted here is that, is that you have, you know, the, the devil in one sense, like building a wall around a nation, or building a wall around a family, or building a wall around a person. 
and they just seem so depraved, there's no way that they'll ever get saved. There's no hope. They're just encapsulated around this gate. So now Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and those gates can't prevail. Now, the only way that a gate could ever attempt to prevail is if you were trying to get through the gate, right? So if you were trying to break into your neighbor's yard, don't do that. But if you were trying to, and you, and you tried to, to get through their gate, and their gate wouldn't open, and you couldn't get through it, you would say, the gate prevailed against me. I tried to get in, and I couldn't. Now, here's what he's saying. I'm building my church, and my church is going to advance against the strongholds of evil in the world. And those strongholds cannot stand. They have to fall down. That's an incredible picture of the church. We flip it around. I think we have bought into some evil lies that make us think the culture is coming down upon the church and the church has to build itself against the culture. And we must run and hide and get away because the culture is taking over the church. And Jesus is saying, stop, time out. The church I'm building is tearing down the strongholds of Satan. We don't have to hide. Right? Christ crushed the head of the serpent. He didn't say, it's almost done when he hung on the cross. Good luck now. He said, it's finished. Go. Right? Go. Crushing these things. Let me give you an example of this. I've used this example a lot. Kind of a common old story. There's a man in Eastern Europe, believer. Communism was coming into his country in the 1950s. He was a very prominent leader in his community, but he was a Christian. The communists said, if you don't renounce Christ, you can't hold your position. He would not renounce Christ. He was a well-known man in the community. And so they took this man in his mid to late 20s, and they, they made him live one mile under the earth in a coal mine, live there. He'd only come out once a month, living in a coal mine. This was their way of stopping the church. A gate of hell was being built, right? And so this coal mine became the place that they put all these prisoners that they wanted to get rid of, political enemies, and they would bring them down into the coal mine. This man is down one mile into the earth living in a coal mine. People are coming down there that aren't in Christ, and he starts saying, hey, there's no guards down here. He started proclaiming Christ. Forty years, fifty years later, communism is gone. And what happens? There's like 600 believers that came out of the coal mine. One guy, one mile under the earth, sharing the gospel with one person at a time. See, the gates of communism could not stop the advancement of Christ's church. This is what Jesus is saying. It's going to advance. It has to. The gates of hell will not prevail again. So the strongholds of around people, the strongholds around the nations, the strongholds around the world cannot stop the advancement of the church that Jesus is building. And so we have to make sure that as we think about the church, that we are aligning itself to the person of Jesus who conquered all these strongholds on the cross, who conquered them all. So a couple things just to think about before we pick up the text here. First of all, just think about this. The church is not done yet. 
we think about our church, we think about what's going on, it's not done yet. There are, there, there are strongholds that, that the cross has broken in our community. They're already broken. The cross broke them. And so he's saying, go advance on those strongholds. You've got victory. Go. You can proclaim Christ. You can do it. But re remember this. That in order to understand the church, we have to free ourselves then from thinking about the church in light of the, my personality. I would prefer to be in a church without ties or with ties or a church with drums or without drums or a church with an organ or not an organ or whatever these personality traits we have. That's not even remotely in Jesus' mind when he's speaking here. He's not saying, I will build my church and all of you will be happy. You will get exactly what you want. All of you will find the perfect little place to just hang out until the rapture or you die. He's saying, no, I'm building this thing because, you see, I went to a cross to break down these strongholds and I'm sending you out on the power of the victory of the cross to proclaim my name so that you can see 600 people get saved in 40 years in a coal mine. You can be faithful with whatever moment you have. That's how we understand the church. Which means that the church isn't perfect yet because you know what's going to happen. We go out with this kind of message. You know who's coming in our doors? Sinners. Sinners are coming in the doors. And they're going to have problems. And we'll have wonderful opportunities to proclaim Christ and forgiveness and love because this work is messy work and we're going to see how messy it is. Look at verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Now, what is Jesus saying? What are these keys of the kingdom of heaven? Some people say this is just authority, some kind of like, you know, one guy gets all, Peter gets all the authority in the church, and he gets to use it. It doesn't seem to flow in the text, especially if you just were to jump ahead. You don't have to do this, but you could just jump ahead two chapters to Matthew 18. And the keys of the kingdom of heaven come up again. And in what context do they come up again? He's saying, now listen, in the course of the church, you're going to deal with people who sin. And when you deal with people who sin, I don't want you to gossip about it. I don't want you to run out and, 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 and do all kinds of crazy things. I just want you to confront the person, talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And if they don't repent, you're allowed to widen the circle. And if they don't listen to that circle, you're allowed to widen the circle even more and bring in more people to talk to this person. And if they don't repent still... At some point, the church is going to say, this person is deep in sin. And we need to start treating them like a non-believer. We're not announcing that they are a non-believer, but what we're going to say is we're going to start treating you that way. Could you imagine if when you had a child and you brought the child home, but, but, but somebody were to say, you have to raise this child, but you have no authority. You can't sit at bedtime, you know, you can't tell them what to eat, you can't do any of that. You have no authority. Like, I'm not going to do that. Can you imagine if I had you, you know, hey, I need you to adopt this child, but here's the reality, you have no authority over this child. You wouldn't do it. In order to raise and care and shepherd, we need authority. Jesus is saying, we're going to go advance, which means struggling people are going to come in, and you're going to need the authority to deal with those struggling people. And there will be times when you're going to have to say, brother, you are a non-repentant, you are in this sin and you're holding on to it. 
and it's dominating your life. And so, yes, we're going to have to remove you from the parts of fellowship so that you could feel it, much like when I would put my children in their room because they did something wrong. Sometimes we remove them from fellowship to say, I want you back in the fellowship, and you need to know something's wrong here. And he's saying, those things could happen. And said, I'm going to give this to you. To give you this ability. And in Matthew 18, Jesus develops out how that's supposed to look. And so when you look at this in 16, look to its corresponding truth in 18 to see how Jesus develops it. And what's he saying? The advancement work is messy work, but I've left you some authority to deal with the sin. Giving you that ability. Because it is tough work. It's much easier just to kind of find 12 people that you like and just hang with them. You know, and then put out the ones that get annoying and find new ones and you know, that's just much easier. But he's saying, don't. Don't. The keys he gives them are the keys to deal with sin. And so binding and loosing, as we see in Matthew 18, just deals with how the church is going to respond, whether or not at times they need to remove someone from fellowship, whether or not they need to bring them back in, those kind of things as you're dealing with unrepentant sinners. But what's the point here? The point is this, dealing in the church is messy, hard work and then he says look at verse 20 let's just we'll wrap it up here then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the messiah christ just means messiah why does he say that the people don't have the same understanding as 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 peter and the disciples do right they think he's just a resurrected john the baptist and jesus doesn't want them to think that the messiah just means being a resurrected john the baptist So he's going to have to die and become a resurrected Jesus. And once he dies and becomes a resurrected Jesus, then they can go proclaim it to the world so that the people would have a right definition because how you define Jesus determines how you'll understand the church. So now let's let's kind of wrap this up. What is the point? Why why are we looking at this text? There's just five things I want to pull from this for us here to kind of wrap this up. The first one is this. The church is based upon a right understanding of who Jesus is. That's the reality. We begin by saying Jesus is the Messiah. Not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. Not just a great teacher. He is the anointed one. The one from God. That is our foundation. That's the message we proclaim to the world. That's the message that everything is built upon. Everything has to be Christ-centered. But secondly... Jesus is building the church to advance. When he defined what he's building, he defined it this way. The gates of hell will not prevail. Which means that if we really want to be a cross-centered church, or a Christ-centered church, we cannot be content just saying we got the gospel right and then go home. If the only thing you're thinking here is, did Leston get the gospel right? He did. Checked it off. Good Sunday. He got it right this Sunday. Amen. We got a good church. Leston got the gospel right. And then let's say the next week I get some verbal garbage coming out of my mouth. Something flies out that's wrong. I didn't know it. So like, oh, Leston got the gospel wrong. Should we leave? It, it, this shouldn't be the way we think about this. We should be saying, yes, we want the gospel to be right, but if the gospel is right, it means that the very change in our heart is going to be what? There are strongholds that were broken at the cross, and we got to get busy walking in that victory. There are family members that you have that are in strongholds of sin, right? Aren't there? 
Aren't some of you, don't you have family members that are just deep and entrenched in sin? And haven't you felt like there's nothing you can do about this? Right? Haven't you felt that way? And Jesus says, there's a lot, man. That gate around your brother or your sister or your cousin or your mother or your father or your grandmother cannot stand when we are Christ-centered and we go live that way. This is how we should be thinking about the church. Which means, the third point, we must go to church to build each other up to be part of this mission. This is why the Hebrews said in Hebrews 10, 24, 25, don't forsake it. Learn how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This week, some of you will be in contact with some of these people who have strongholds around them. And for some of you, you're stressed out about it. Some of you, the thought of visiting someone or the thought of calling someone or the thought of doing something is stressful. You need us to build into your life, to help you walk in love and to help you walk in the power of the gospel. If you stay away from the church and only go when it's convenient, you know what happens? A, you get weaker and you don't walk in the power of the cross. And B, I get weaker because I don't have you helping me. And I need your help. I need your help. And if you're not here, you can't help me. So he's saying, think, think about the church through that lens, not through the lens of whether or not it makes me happy. I've come to build you up. Which means our fourth thing, which is just a reiteration of something, but it's so important I wanted to reiterate it and make another point of it. The church is designed to grow and not stagnate. But when I use that word grow, I'm not saying that our whole goal is to get everybody from all the other churches into our church. I'm not saying the church exists just to have sinners hang out. I'm saying it's a place we're going to proclaim Christ. But what I'm saying is I want to see people get saved and then come in here and get discipled and become Christ-centered so they can encourage me to walk in love and encourage you to walk in love and they can keep going out proclaiming in those strongholds. And so the church is designed to grow that way. It's not designed to stagnate. If we roll our eyes and say, oh, do you remember the day when we were just 40 people in the Brandon's porch? Wasn't that great? You go back there, you're going the wrong way. God did not say, I wanted to plant you in somebody's back porch just so you could hang there. When all around that neighborhood, there are people who have strongholds of sin that Christ has broken, and we can go out there and proclaim Christ and see them come into the fellowship of the body of Christ. What a great thing. Fifth, there is no perfect church, only obedient or disobedient churches. We are either on mission or we're off mission, but we're not perfect. That's why we have Matthew 18 in the Bible, right? It's assuming we're not perfect. I will let you down, you will let me down, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. But if we can get our eyes on why Christ is building us together I think it will change everything for us. So, what I hope you gain from this is a different view of the church. And everything that we are going to do as a church, everything that we are about, and the focus of this year is to begin to learn how to walk with this mindset. And I can just tell you there's no more freedom that you could ever find than walking in this way. Let's pray together.
Jesus, I thank you for salvation and for life, for your righteousness that you've given to us. I thank you for the life we have of the gospel. I thank you that the cross has broken down strongholds and that those strongholds cannot stand. We've seen national strongholds try to tear down the church and it couldn't. We've seen stories of people who have been in the gutter of life and redeemed. We know that there is power in the proclamation of Christ alone. So Lord, help us as a church to get our eyes onto that mission. May this year be a year where, where our focus changes and we really begin to start proclaiming Christ and making him known. Lord, help us to be bold about it, to live boldly, fill our hearts with compassion. Let us see people in bondage to sin, not as our enemy, not as people to run from, but people whom you have died to set free from that sin. And may we stand with courage. Lord, may we raise our children with the confidence of the cross, not a cowardice of the culture. May we stand boldly, confidently, believing wholeheartedly that what you have done on the cross is to impact the world until you return. Thank you for saving us and using us. May we find our purpose in that. In Christ's name, amen.